Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Dr. Alfred Mealy. Alfred Mealy is a professor of philosophy at Florida State University. His research interests include issues about human behavior located at the intersection of philosophy and science, such as free will, personal autonomy, self-deception, self-control, intention, intentional action, and moral responsibility. He's also the past director of the Philosophy and Science of Self-Control Project and the Big Questions in Free Will Project. His books on the subject of free will include Dialogue on Free Will and Science, Free, Why Science Hasn't Disproved Free Will, and Free Will and Luck. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss free will from the perspective of philosophy and from the perspective of neuroscience. Dr. Alfred Mealy, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Let us start with the concept of free will. It is a hard to define concept, but it is a crucial concept to both individual and uh, social life. Uh, let us try to unpack uh, the concept of uh, free will. When people want a single answer, I find that I can't do it, but I can give them two options. Here's the first one. It's pretty modest. And let's make it uh, for freely deciding to do something. So if a person is sane and rational, uncompelled, uncoerced, uh, and makes a reasonable decision on the basis of good information, that decision is made freely. So that seems pretty easy. But some people say, no, you need more than that. You need it to be the case that under exactly the same circumstances, that person could have made a different decision. And one way to picture it is, Suppose you could roll back time and then roll it forward, not changing anything. So nothing has changed right up to the moment of decision. And at this point in time, the person makes a different decision. Some people say you need that uh, for free will. And what that amounts to is what we think of as indeterminism at the moment of decision. So here's my second uh, notion of free will then. It's just like the first. Sane and rational, uncompelled, uncoerced. You make a reasonable decision on the basis of good information. And you could have decided otherwise at that time in the sense I just explained. So now we have two, two accounts of free will. To understand the debate on the topic of free will, we need to understand few important concepts such as uh, determinism, compatibilism, incompatibilism, and libertarianism. Determinism can be described as the thesis that uh, there is, at any instant, exactly one physically possible future. It suggests that all events, including moral choices, are completely determined by previously existing causes and are thus predictable. It also suggests free will is an illusion and our behavior is governed by internal or external forces over which we have no control. Uh, 
So this is determinism. But what is compatibilism, incompatibilism and libertarianism? Okay, to explain all that, I have to start by saying that I agree with the first part of what you said about determinism, but the rest is uh, tendentious, let's say. So determinism is the thesis that at any point in time, there's only one physically possible future, one future that's compatible with the past of that universe and its laws of nature. But the compatibilist says determinism so understood is compatible with free will. That is, a universe can be deterministic and there can be free agents in it. Um, it turns out that compatibilism is the most popular free will view among philosophers. There's this survey that was done of philosophers in 2014 and 59% uh, of philosophers identified as compatibilists. Um, Okay, now if you look at that first definition or account of free will that I gave you, that's consistent with determinism. It's consistent with determinism that you're sane and rational, uncompelled, uncoerced, and you make a good decision on the basis of good information or a reasonable decision. Um, so the compatibilist says, yes, determinism and free will can go together. Not that determinism needs to be true in order for you to act freely, but that you can have both at the same time. And the incompatibilist says no to that. The incompatibilist says, no, determinism precludes free will. It's incompatible with free will. And then libertarians, people you asked about, in this sense, it's not, not political libertarianism. Uh, libertarians hold that incompatibilism is true and free will exists. So what they're saying then in part is that determinism is false of our universe. And determinism as I defined it. For centuries, uh, the concept of free will was discussed uh, through the lens of philosophy. However, recently, uh, about uh, 70 years ago, we started looking into this concept from the perspective of neuroscience. Talk us through the important philosophical views about free will uh, that emerged over time and then we will get to the study of free will from the perspective of neuroscience. So let us first look at some of the philosophical views about the concept of free will. You know, that's uh, interesting. I wrote a book on free will and neuroscience. It's called Free, Why Science Hasn't Disproved Free Will. And just recently I was invited to write a book for the general public on the philosophy of uh, free will. So I've been thinking about it. Um, and, you know, we're back to, to start with those two different ways of thinking about free will that I already mentioned. So one way is called compatibilist, and it's just it's good enough to be acting freely or deciding freely that you're sane and rational and nobody's pushing you around and you make a reasonable decision on the basis of good information. Um, there's nothing in neuroscience that threatens compatibilism, really. Um, but now the alternative to it, the main pro-free will alternative to it, libertarianism is, no, you need more than that. You need indeterminism at the moment of decision, something that I explained a little while ago. So you need it to be true that although you decided to have Wheaties for breakfast, 
under the same conditions, you could have decided to have cornflakes instead. Or to make it uh, more serious, although a person decided to hold somebody up at gunpoint just now, he could have decided otherwise at that very time. Um, so what you would need there is indeterminism in the brain. Now, well, we can look, well, we can try to look for indeterminism in the brain in the real world, but we're not really in any position to do that yet. Um, here's where the main threat from neuroscience comes in. So we're assuming when I talk about these decisions, I'm assuming that they're conscious decisions, that they're made consciously by the person. But there were some studies done in the early 80s that purported to show that we never make a conscious decision, that our brains uh, generate decisions unconsciously, and we might, if we become aware of them, we would become aware of them later. Uh, would you please expand uh, a bit more on the philosophical views uh, about uh, free will? Okay. So the basic idea behind compatibilism is that free will is a matter of being able to respond reasonably to reasons. So if reasons had been different, you would have acted differently. Um, it's a very down-to-earth sort of view, and it's uh, associated with the idea that most people are morally responsible for some of what they do. And that's going to be true independently of whether something like determinism happens to be true or false. And the thought is, oh, determinism is a, is a matter of physics, and it's too deep a thing to have a bearing on whether we act freely and whether we're morally responsible. Now, as I said, libertarians disagree, and there are different kinds of libertarian view. The kind I favor, actually, I should say, I'm agnostic on this dispute between compatibilists and incompatibilists. And so I work on both sides of the fence, as it were. But um, even though I'm agnostic, I have a favorite libertarian view because there are different options for libertarians. And um, the one I favor involves causation, just as compatibilism does. But the causation is indeterministic. Now, what does that amount to? It amounts to this, that the causes of a decision, if it's free as libertarians understand freedom, um, don't necessitate the decision. What they do is to raise the probability of that decision. And under the very conditions under which they caused that decision, they might not have. And some other decision might have been caused instead. Um, so what you can think of here is you have competing reasons, and the competing reasons favor different decisions, and in uh, the actual world, say, the reasons for not doing the holdup uh, result in a decision not to do the holdup. And in another world where everything's the same right up until then, another possible world, uh, the reasons for doing the holdup generate a decision to do the holdup. So that's the kind of idea. There's nothing uh, supernatural about it, nothing mystical. It's just that the causation at issue, instead of being deterministic, is probabilistic. 
Let us now discuss the concept of uh, free will from the perspective of neuroscience. In your publications and presentations, uh, you discuss a number of experiments conducted by neuroscientists and the findings and results of these experiments are used to claim uh, that we do not have free will, to claim that free will does not exist. Let us look at some of these experiments and how the findings of these experiments are used to justify the argument uh, that uh, free will does not exist. So we have to start at the beginning then, and that would be with uh, Benjamin Libet who did some early studies in the 1980s. And I'll describe the experiment, and I'll describe the alleged findings, and we can take it from there. So, subjects are seated in chairs, and what they're going to do is flex their wrist whenever they want, from time to time. They'll do it at least 40 times in one of these old experiments. And they're hooked up to two machines. One is measuring changes in electrical conductivity on the scalp, and the other one measures muscle motion. And what is discovered is that when the people are reminded to be spontaneous, not to plan in advance when to flex, uh, to be as spontaneous as they can be, you get a ramp up on the scalp that starts about 550 milliseconds before muscle motion. So a change in electrical conductivity on the scalp that has a ramp shape um, starts about 550 milliseconds before muscle motion. Now, people are asked after they flex to report on where the spot was on this very fast clock when they first became aware of their decision, intention, urge, or wish, or will to flex right then. So after they flex, the spot on this clock stops or hand, and then they, then they say where they think it was, the hand, uh, when they first became aware of their decision, intention, urge, or whatever. And what they do is um, move a cursor to that spot on the clock. And that clock makes a complete uh, revolution in about two and a half seconds. So it's really fast. Okay, and what they discover is that the average time of first reported awareness of this mental event, the intention, decision, urge, whatever, is 200 milliseconds before muscle motion, just about 200 milliseconds. So what Libet says is, well, you see, when that ramp up starts, that's when the decision is made, and the person doesn't become conscious of it for another 350 milliseconds about a third of a second. Um, and so if you think that decisions need to be made consciously in order to be made freely, then the subjects in these experiments would not be freely deciding to flex and not be freely deciding when to do it. And then uh, Libet generalizes from his alleged finding in this setting to all cases. So we never decide consciously. And if in order to decide consciously, I mean, if in order to decide freely, you need to decide consciously, then we never decide freely. So basically, uh, what you are saying is that in these experiments, it was monitored and observed uh, 
that the decisions were made before the subject became aware of making these decisions. And uh, based on this observation, the researchers concluded and suggested that the decisions were made unconsciously and the decision maker had no conscious input in making these decisions. And that is why free will does not exist and that is why free will is an illusion. Uh, is this a correct uh, description? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what's going on. So then one question that should come to mind is, why should we think that the decision is made when the ramp up starts? Why might not the decision be made uh, later? And that raises another question. How long would it take a decision to flex your wrist now to generate muscle motion that's measurable by the EMG? Does it take uh, over half a second or might it take less time? And you can get indirect evidence about this with the reaction time studies where you tell participants when you see the go signal, flex your wrist. And in a reaction time study like that, that was done while people were watching one of these fast clocks, uh, the mean time between the go signal and muscle motion was around 100 milliseconds. So that's evidence that, oh, let's imagine that what happens when you detect the go signal is that then you have this intention to, to do the thing. Um, so that's evidence that it doesn't take anything like 550 milliseconds uh, for a decision to do a thing now to generate you know, muscle motion. Um, there's other evidence of this kind too. And it is uh, arbitrary to think that when the ramp up starts, that's when the decision is made. There is uh, some kind of decision causing process going on if a decision is made. And what happens at minus 550 might just be part of that process and the decision might emerge later. Uh, now, at this point, things get complicated. There are some more recent studies. Uh, do you want me to talk about neural noise? Okay, so there are some recent studies according to which the decision really is made right around the time that people say they are first aware of their decision or intention or whatever, and that what's going on is that the brain is in this tie-breaking situation. So, you know, you can flex now or now or now or now, all these different moments, and there's no reason to prefer any of the nearby moments over any of the others. So if you're going to make a decision, you need some kind of procedure. And the thought here is that what the brain uses to make the decision is neural noise. So it's neural activity that doesn't carry any information, really. And there's always the neural noise going on. And so the brain will set a threshold for deciding. And when the noise hits that threshold, the brain decides. And uh, the, according to this theory, this particular theory, the threshold is hit about 200 milliseconds before muscle motion. Um, now, this is disputed. This was first published in 2012, um, and there are follow-up studies, and it gets, it gets very complicated these days. 
So I think I only wrote about it once because I've, I've been wanting to wait to see how it turns out. And it still hasn't turned out one way or the other. Uh, Libet's idea that the decision is made at the beginning of this ramp up is an arbitrary idea. And there is evidence that the decision is made later. The indirect evidence is pretty good. So it shouldn't take a decision to do a thing now that long to generate uh, muscle motion. Now, these neuroscience experiments uh, are usually conducted in a controlled environment. Uh, these experiments uh, usually involve uh, simple and straightforward choices, such as uh, you pick option A or you pick option B. You take an action or you don't take an action. However, in our lives, we usually make decisions after thinking long and hard. Sometimes we think about an issue for many days, perhaps for many weeks. We evaluate pros and cons. We discuss these issues with family and friends. Sometimes we get assistance uh, from experts. And during this decision-making, at least it seems that uh, we are fully in charge of uh, the decision-making process. So how does this kind of decision-making process relate to the decision-making processes that are being studied in these neuroscience uh, experiments uh, that we discussed a few moments ago? Should we apply the findings of uh, these experiments uh, to the lengthy decision-making processes that we usually follow in our lives to make uh, important decisions? Yeah, that's, that is a good point. So it's a point I've made too. It's about generalizing from findings in this narrow laboratory situation to uh, all decisions. Um, so there's this old parable about uh, an, a hyper-rational donkey. It's Bearden's ass. And um, the ass will never do a thing unless it has a reason to prefer doing it to doing anything else. And one day the ass is walking around and it's hungry and it just happens to find itself midway between two equivalent bales of hay. They have the same sheen, they're the same size, they're the same distance from them and so on. So because the uh, ass is hyper-rational, it doesn't have, it just stands there and dies. It doesn't have a reason to prefer one veil over the other. Now, Libet's uh, subjects are in that kind of situation. It, it's arbitrary picking that they need to do, this moment or that moment or, or that moment. And um, it may be that although arbitrary picking is deciding, you know, it's a kind of deciding, that it's very different from these serious decisions that you're talking about. <clears throat> Back when I was running the Big Questions in Free Will Project, I tried to get neuroscientists interested in doing studies where something hangs on which way you choose and to see if the results are different, like the brain readings are different in those cases. Eventually, some such studies were done. Um, there's a neuroscientist named Uri Maus, Maus is M-A-O-Z, and he did a study uh, of this kind. It was cleverly designed. I'll tell you about the design. <clears throat> so participants were going to choose between charities. 
like save the dogs, save the cats, save the trees, save the whales, and so on. And um, the experimenters would see which of these decisions were close calls for people, which were no-brainers and which were close calls. And, um, and they were told that something really does hang on what they choose because the charities that get the most votes will be entered into a lottery and will win $1,000. And that part was true. So the charities that got the most votes got into the lottery and the prize was 1000 bucks. Um, what Uri Maus discovered is that there was no ramp up of the kind that you get in the Libet scenario. That ramp up is called a type two readiness potential. Doesn't matter what it's called, but uh, Mao's didn't get it. This is another study that I want to wait and see about. But that would be interesting. That would indicate that uh, the decision making process is different in these two different kinds of case. And you know that shouldn't be so surprising. Arbitrary picking is is different from thoughtful choosing, even if both are cases of choosing. So yeah, I agree with you. I think of that as the generalization problem for the limit style argument. You have also studied the concept of autonomy and the concept of self-control uh, as they relate uh, to the concept of uh, free will. Uh, talk us through these concepts and help us understand how the concepts of uh, autonomy and self-control relate uh, to the concept of uh, free will. Yeah, I'll start with autonomy. So in 1995, a book of mine entitled Autonomous Agents was published. And back then, I didn't really want to use the expression free will in my writing because um, too many people associated it with mystical stuff and, and I don't. So I thought, oh, what's a good term to use instead? And it was autonomy. So for me back then, autonomy was close to free will in disguise, um, but maybe not quite. But I, I thought of autonomy as entailing free will. And the, uh, the basic question in that book is, what can you add to self-control to generate autonomy? Um, and, you know, you might think, well, if you have self-control, you have autonomy. Self-control is enough. But I thought not, and here's why. So self-control, roughly speaking, is something like the ability to bring your behavior into line with your better judgments, so that if you judge that you should go on a diet, you go on a diet. If you judge that you should quit smoking, you quit smoking, and so on. So if you think of self-control like that, the ability to bring your behavior into line with your better judgments, then you need to start thinking about, hey, what about those judgments? How do they get to be in place? Why are they the way they are? And imagine that your better judgments are a product of a manipulator's manipulation. So you're manipulated in such a way that you judge it best to X. Well, you might have perfect self-control. Now that you judge it best to X, you go ahead and X. But are you autonomous? Well, given that the judgment was generated by the manipulator, no, you're heteronymous, you're ruled by the manipulator. 
Yeah, so the question of that book is, what do you have to add to self-control, even ideal self-control? Not have to so much. It's what can you add to it uh, to generate an autonomous agent? And then uh, the answer is <laughs> very complicated. I think that's my longest book. But um, the idea is that what you're adding is some kind of control over your values and over your better judgments and some kind of freedom from uh, manipulation. You briefly touched upon uh, this few moments ago, uh, but I'm keen to discuss this point further. You don't seem to take a clear position on the arguments that uh, human autonomy is compatible with determinism or is it incompatible with determinism? How can you then provide arguments in support of uh, autonomous agents uh, for these two opposing positions? And you call it, as you mentioned a few moments ago, agnostic autonomism. Yeah, agnostic autonomism. So I'm agnostic about whether autonomy is compatible with determinism or not. And my view really is that the thesis that there are autonomous agents, either of the deterministic kind or of the indeterministic kind, is more credible than the thesis that there are no autonomous agents. So what I need to do then is to develop a positive view of autonomy, both from a compatibilist perspective and then from a libertarian perspective. And I argue that the disjunction of those two things, that is, either this compatibilist autonomy is true or this libertarian autonomy is true, that disjunction is more credible than the claim that there are no autonomous agents. So I have the burden then of developing two theories. So most philosophers, you know, develop just one and they say, that's it, that's the truth. But I don't, I can't make up my mind whether uh, autonomy is compatible with determinism or not. So I develop two theories. And I say, in a way, to readers, take your pick. If you like compatibilism, you should like my compatibilist theory. If you're a libertarian, I'll try to persuade you that you should go for this libertarian theory of mine. Uh, yeah, somebody once said to me, how can you keep so many balls in the air and uh, accomplish anything? But I, I think my answer was, well, look, I'm accomplishing twice as much, two theories rather than one. Uh, you have proposed, uh, as you mentioned a few moments ago, a two-stage model of uh, modest libertarianism. Help us to understand the nuts and bolts of this model that you call modest uh, libertarianism. Okay, modest libertarianism. Now, uh, Bob Doyle is really in love with the two-stage model. So uh, he, he gives the impression that that's my final libertarian model, but it isn't. It's just one of them, one of the libertarian ones. So why is it modest? Well, we have to sort of go back to the beginning and think about a basic alleged problem with libertarian views. So what the normal libertarian requires for a free decision or autonomous decision is that at the moment of decision, different options are open to the agent 
holding the past fixed and the laws fixed. So again, if you were to roll back time and then roll it forward, when you get to that moment of decision, it could go differently this time than on the last rerun, say. Um, and if you think about it, then it looks like, well, isn't it partly a matter of luck then that the guy decides this way rather than that? Because given everything exactly as it was, in this world, he decides to cheat or lie. And in that world, he decides to do the right thing. So it looks like a matter of luck. Uh, and the modest libertarian says, oh, I can fix that problem by requiring something weaker. It doesn't have to be the case that the agent could have decided otherwise at that very moment. But if you go back in time, there might be something that could have been different such that the guy now is deciding freely. And what could it be? Well, so when we're deliberating about what to do, it would be good if the obvious uh, considerations just came to mind right away. But then there might be uh, peripheral considerations that may or may not come to mind. And if one comes to mind, you can assess it and reject it or embrace it and so on. And you can try to search your memory to bring considerations to mind. So one kind of agent then is such that before the moment of decision, there are different ways that decision can go. It depends on what comes to mind and what he does with it. Uh, but at the moment of decision, uh, he's already settled. Like he judges it best to do something and then he just intends to do it. So the modest libertarian tries to solve this luck problem by moving the luck back a bit from the moment of decision. And the modest libertarian says, look, you compatibilists can't show me that we have any more control over what comes to mind than we have if we're indeterministic agents. Uh, so if you're okay with your view, you should be okay with mine. I mean, that's the idea. So that's modest libertarianism. But real libertarians always say, well, almost always, there are some exceptions. Now that's not good enough. The openness has to be at the moment of decision. And then uh, for them, I have my daring libertarian view. And the daring libertarian view, as contrasted with the modest, uh, has openness at the moment of decision. And it tries to explain why it's okay. So why is it okay? Well, the idea is this. <clears throat> so what happens at the moment of decision <clears throat> really is partly a matter of luck. But that doesn't render the decision unfree. Why not? Well, what you might be thinking is that in indeterminism at the moment of decision, uh, the chances that you'll make different decisions are just arbitrarily imposed on you. They just come out of the blue. But that's not how it goes for real agents. The chance that they'll make a good decision and the chance that they'll make a bad decision is dependent on earlier decisions they made and earlier actions they performed <clears throat> and their reflection on the consequences of their actions and their decisions, if any, to improve their character or not to bother, and so on. So the idea is the agent has some responsibility, just playing along for now, uh, with these antecedent probabilities 
and some responsibility for the subsequent decision. Now, so you say that, and then the question is, of course, well, how can they have any responsibility for these earlier decisions if at the moment of decision, they could have gone either of two or any of three different ways? There's the problem of luck again. And I say, yes, it's there too, but it's not as though the antecedent probabilities of the different decisions there come out of the blue. They came out of earlier decisions. Okay. Now we can see where it's heading. It's going to head all the way back to the first decision a little kid makes that we think might count as free and that we think maybe the kid is morally responsible for. Now, whatever that age is, you know, people argue about that. And it's different in different kids. But, you know, maybe it's around five. Who knows? Um, so let's suppose that the kid makes his first allegedly free decision. Um, there, there's no responsibility for the character that generates the decision. And it looks like it's a matter of luck that the kid decides to pull his sister's hair in the actual world rather than deciding not to do it or grab her toy rather than not. Um, okay, so just a matter of luck. Does that prevent the kid from being morally responsible for his decision? And what you might say there is, well, look, it's a little kid. The standards for moral responsibility for little kids are pretty low. And uh, the blame and praise that goes along with it uh, is pretty low, too. So you might think, yeah, you know, the ball has to get started somewhere, the free will or moral responsibility ball, if it exists at all. Um, so maybe the bar is low enough there that the kid gets over it. And then uh, you can start building on it. So now the kid, let's say he does the wrong thing. His father scolds him. The kid thinks, yeah, that was pretty bad. I'm beginning to see why I shouldn't do it. And, and he works on, on his character. He improves himself over time. Uh, you know, as he progresses, there's still a chance there are times when he could do A or could do B, <clears throat> but he's starting to shape the antecedent probabilities of future choices. And uh, so that, that is my daring libertarian view. It embraces luck at the time of basically free decisions, but it tries to explain why the luck doesn't preclude free will. Your presentations and your publications seem to give this impression that if we find out that free will is an illusion, if we find out that free will does not exist, then the implications may stop us declaring this conclusively that free will does not exist. However, science does not work in this manner and research does not work in this manner. If and when there is a conclusive evidence uh, that free will does not exist, uh, we should accept it and uh, we should deal with the implications, uh, whatever the implications are. Well, so keep in mind that I have these two different notions of free will. If we don't have even the, uh, the simple kind, the compatibilist kind, yeah, I, I think then we're... Uh, the world isn't anything like the way we think it is. And nobody is morally responsible for anything. Nobody deserves any credit for anything or any blame. 
So lacking that kind of free will would be a serious matter. If it turns out that we lack the indeterministic kind, you know, maybe that's not such a big deal. Um, but like scientists and philosophers, I agree that we have to go with the evidence. And right now, um, you know, there's no evidence or no good evidence that we don't have free will. Uh, that doesn't entitle us to say that we do. So then we have to weigh up, you know, the reasons for thinking we don't against the reasons for thinking we do. And when it's me, the reasons for thinking we do divide into two categories, the ones that support uh, compatibilism and the ones that support a libertarian view. I think, I, I mean, I've been explicit about this. I've never claimed that libertarianism is true. And it's because we don't have the evidence that we need that the brain works in that indeterministic way. But not having libertarian free will, you know, might not be a terrible thing. Free will is a complex and fascinating topic. We have touched upon a number of concepts that you discuss uh, uh, in, in your publications. Uh, is there anything uh, that you would like to add to this conversation uh, before we finish? Um, maybe I just want to say this, because sometimes I look at uh, blogs where lay folk are blogging along with pros, and uh, I think what I want to say is things are usually more complicated than you think. I mean, this is why I have two different uh, free will theories, because things are, are so complicated I can't choose, I can't make the basic choice between compatibilism and uh, incompatibilism. And these neuroscience studies are really uh, fascinating. But if you look at the literature, there are a lot of disagreements about how to interpret the results. So people need to keep all that in mind. And um, I think, you know, maybe reading science writers is, is okay for a start, but eventually you need to move on and read uh, experts. Dr. Alfred Mealy, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you and goodbye. Bye. <laughs>